This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. You know, I don't think that the devil and all his minions, I don't think that the devil and all his minions fear buildings of wood and stone, buildings with crosses out front. I don't think that concerns the devil in the least. I don't think the devil's concerned about our buildings. I don't think the devil's concerned about our numbers, 10,000 upon 10,000. I don't think that's something that frightens the devil one bit. I don't think our programs, our initiatives, our efforts, all the different things and bells and whistles that we hang upon Christendom, I don't think that that is what concerns him. I don't think that that's what threatened him. What I think threatens the devil is the same thing that threatened the high priest in today's text. And that is this, the gospel faithfully preached. When the gospel is preached, things happen. When the gospel is faithfully exposited, hearts are changed. When people take the words of this life, the words of this life, and share it with still others, it's as if into a darkened world a light shines. Things happen. There is a change. And we see it in today's text. In today's text, you have the hardened hearts of a culture that was so hardened against the Son of Man that they nailed him to a cross. They hung him from a tree, so to speak. So hardened in their hearts, so far removed from the walk they were called to walk, and yet a light had shined, and it would not be quenched. And the apostles and disciples began to preach and share that light, point to Christ. And because of that, things were happening in Jerusalem. And the people knew it. The people looked around and saw that the city was being filled. The high priest, if you notice in today's text, that's the thrust of his accusation. What does he say against Peter and the disciples? He says this. He says, You have filled the city, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and that's what made him so mad. That's what the devil opposes. The gospel in this first century text was bringing healing, it was converting the multitudes, it was overcoming the strongholds of demon and man alike. And to the priests, this was infuriating because their ministry, such as it was, had never done any such thing. Their ministry, such as it was, had only contributed to the hardness of the hearts of the people around them. But something about what these men were saying was different. It was not only different in terms of words they used and the gospel they preached, but the effect it had. The high priest, the others, they looked around and they said, what they're saying is impacting, impacting the culture around us in such a way as that is threatening to us. And so the priests, they took them, they beat the disciples, they threw them in jail. Tried to drive them from the city. But no matter what they did, the gospel prevailed. No matter what they did, the gospel won out. And across the centuries, it's been the same way. And across the centuries, the enemies of the faith would outlaw the gospel, contend against the church, drive it underground, kill its believers, and still the gospel would prevail. Why? Because there's power in it. There's power in it that you will not find in any man-centered philosophy or ideology. There's power in the pages of this book, this living word, you will not find on any other tome on your bookshelf. So what must we do? We must share it, preach it. And guess what? When we do, things happen. And that's what the high priest and the others saw. The gospel they saw is a mountain of iron and a world of sand. The sand will not overcome it. Let's read about this power now. Let's read about the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. As we look again, verses 17 and 18 of our text, we'll look at these verses, then we'll work our way through the balance. Verse 17. 
Then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Imagine the fury on their faces. Imagine their faces bright, beat red. They're angry at the disciples. Verse 18, and they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them into the common prison. All right. In the weeks leading up to this text, we're kind of joining the story midstream. In the weeks leading up to this text, what had happened? Well, Jesus had died. He had been resurrected. He had gone up to heaven. He'd had the ascension. And at this point, the apostles, the disciples, they're sharing what they had seen. They were eyewitnesses to all of it. And they began to tell people. They began to preach and to teach and share the gospel. And as they did so, hearts were changed. And you see in the first few chapters of the book of Acts that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. It wasn't through programs and amenities and all sorts of different things and rah-rah and bells and whistles. It was because they faithfully preached the gospel. When they did so, hearts were changed, the church grew, just as God told them that it would happen, just as God said that it would work. But, at the same time, not everyone was equally pleased. Not everyone was equally happy about this. The high priests, as we see in verse 17, they grew more and more indignant. They looked around, they weren't stupid. They looked around and saw something these guys are saying is turning the people against us. Something the disciples are saying is different, is counter to what we've been saying, and this is threatening to us. And so they did what tyrants of all ages do. They threw these men into prison. They thought they could squash, quell the message by getting rid of the messengers, as if that would work. However, as we're seeing in the next few verses, their time in prison, it would be a short stay. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All right. So during the night an angel comes. During the evening hours an angel comes or releases the men. And instead of telling them, all right, you need to lay low for a little bit, you need to go and, and kind of quietly you know, sneak out of here and, and maybe stay out of town for a little bit, maybe just you know, wait until the heat dies down. The angel doesn't do that, not at all. What does he do? He opens the doors, the doors fling open, he says, go, go right back to what you were doing when you got in trouble in the first place. Go back and start preaching. Go back and start teaching. And speak to the people all the words of this life. Let me ask you a question. Why an angel? Why an angel? We can take that for granted. You know, we go, oh, it's an angel. Why an angel? See, an angel isn't typical. I know it, sometimes it seems like it when you think about angels in Scripture. You come up with a few different occurrences, but it's not typical. In the thousands of years of recorded scriptural history, angels are not the typical way that God deals with things, that God responds to problems. What does God usually do? He typically uses other things, secondary causes, to accomplish his end, secondary means. An example would be he might send someone to unlock, send a friend, send an acquaintance, change the heart of the jailer as occurred elsewhere, do something to prompt doors to open and them to escape, but to use ordinary means. Here he uses an angel. Why? Why an angel in this case? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons we come up with. At least one is this. By having Peter and the disciples released through supernatural means, means that were unexplainable, means that no one could understand, guess what that did? 
that had the impact to everyone, including the guards, the jailers, the high priests, and everyone, of realizing something. If God released these men because of an unexplainable miracle, or at least if they were released, if they departed by what seems to be a miracle, it would have the effect of suggesting to the priests and others that they weren't really dealing, fighting against men here. They were dealing with God. The fact that God used a supernatural means as if to highlight with a neon light His hand on these men. These are mine. And to demonstrate to the high priest and everyone, you are contending against me when you do this. When you act against them. That's one possible example. And you see that also in Scripture. Think of Exodus. Think of the book of Exodus. You've got the Israelites. They're in prison. They're oppressed, so to speak, by the Egyptians. They're oppressed. They're working for Pharaoh. They're making bricks without straw and the likes. The hand of Pharaoh is heavy upon them. What does God do? Well, he sends them Moses, but through Moses and a series of plagues and miracles and supernatural means, Pharaoh would have come away with the understanding, the impression that he was not fighting against Moses. He was contending against God. Moses couldn't make the river turn to blood. Moses couldn't cause the frogs and the lice and the hail and all that different stuff. It let Pharaoh know who he was up against, and I think that's possible here. Now again, verse 20, notice the apostles are not told to go back to their homes. They aren't told to limit their expression. The angel didn't say, all right, guys, you have to tone it down. We need to look at the city and realize that we need to make this relevant to the people. And and if they're seekers, we need to be sensitive to them. And we need to kind of make this a, a more friendly engagement. The angel didn't coach them on anything like that. He didn't tell them to water it down, tone it down, or what have you. He says, you go back and do just what you're doing because you are doing fine. You go back into the temple. You speak to the people the words of this life. See, the fact disciples have been set free would have amazed everyone. If you were there, let's say you knew these men were sent to jail, right? And you're standing there, and you're one of the corridors, and, and you look by, and there's Peter and, and the other apostles going by, and you go, ah, what? Jail. How'd you? You'd be wondering how they got out. And then you'd be all the more amazed by what they went and did next. They went right back to doing what they were doing when they got in trouble in the first time. All right, let's look at verses 21 through 24. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. When the disciples heard the words from the angel saying, go and preach, that's what they did. They were responsive. They didn't go brush their teeth first. They didn't go have a sandwich. They went and did exactly what they had been instructed to do. They went early in the morning, not late, not past noon, early in the morning, and they taught. But, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel. See, so what's happening is two things. Number one, the disciples, they've been set free from prison, but not everyone knows it yet. And so what happens is the high priest and the elders, they report to work that day, and they think they're going to have this trial. They think they're going to bring these men before them. So they start gathering. All the leadership is gathering and ready. The council is ready to lay the smackdown upon Peter and the others. But meanwhile, Peter and the others, they're not in jail. They're not what they expected. So the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and they reported, saying, Indeed, we have found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered, they wondered what the outcome would be. I'll bet they did. I'll bet they wondered. Early in the morning, 
They've been released at night. They've been released. And Peter and the apostles, they go right back to the temple. They make a beeline for it. They don't pass go. They don't collect $200. They go straight into the temple as if they'd never been jailed to begin with. But being unaware of this, not understanding what has happened, that these men are gone, the high priest, the others, the Jewish council, they send word. They say, bring them to us. Bring them out of prison. And they were probably very smug as they did so. You know, the high priest, he probably reported to work that day. He fixed his tall pointy hat. He got his robe all ready for the day. He were all ready. This was going to be the day that they were going to deal with the disciples of Christ. This was going to be the day when this itinerant rabbi's rabble of followers were going to be dealt with decisively. Before the council and before all the people. They were smug. They were arrogant. They were ready to lay the full power of their office down upon these men. However, God had something different in mind. The officers who go to find the apostles discover that they're not there. That they are not there. And there's no explanation for how it had been done. It appeals to the idea, this is something, we're messing with something beyond explanation. That should have been message received to the high priest. There's no explanation, shy of a miracle, for how they got out. And the moment you start messing with the genuinely miraculous, you better think twice. Because there's only one hand that those miracles can, can come from. In any case, I like the end of verse 24 when it says that the chief priests, they sat there and they wondered what the outcome would be. Slack-jawed, the color draining from their face, tall hat maybe tilted a little bit. They wonder what's going on. This is not what they expected. This was going to be a good day and it hadn't turned out turned out that way. And so they're perplexed. I like how the ESV translates it. They're perplexed about what would happen next. Well, here's the thing. They didn't have to wait long for their answer. In verse 25, we read that one came and told them, saying, look, the men who you put into prison are standing in the temple, and they are teaching the people. So while the priests and the leaders are meeting in private, ready to try these men, seeking to squash the disciples in their message, the apostles went right back to doing what they're doing in the same place they had been doing it earlier. As we said before, usually in a jailbreak, you head for the hills. Usually in a jailbreak, you watch movies, what happens? You know, old westerns, the guys, they escape from jail, and they ride out, and Clint Eastwood, they ride out, and they're, they're hiding. I guess Clint Eastwood would come back and deal with, his, <laughs> deal with the jailer. But you get the picture. The people, typically, you run away, you're gone, you depart. But these guys, not so much. They go right back to the visible place doing what they were doing. In verses 26 and 27, we then read this. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, because they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. See, the hearts and minds were truly being converted in the world around them. The officers knew that. They're thinking, if we lay too heavy a hand on these guys, the people are going to turn on us. And verse 27 says that when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Notice that the disciples were receptive. And I think the reason is because this, this was exactly where God intended them to be, to share the most critical message with the priests and with the others. So out of the rage, frustration, anger that they had, the Jewish leaders, they bring the apostles back to the temple. They did it carefully, lest they be stoned. But again, God intended that this outcome would happen, that they would be brought in a position to share the gospel. And then in verse 28, 
upon seeing them come in, you got the priest, you got the high priest, and he is, he's angry, he's indignant, he can't believe what's going on. Everything that's happened is an affront to him and to his pride and to his sensitivities and the like. He's angry, he's furious, he's pounding tables and desks and what have you. He just could not be more irate. And then he sees the subject, the subject of his anger. He sees the very men who he thought he'd dealt with, at least in jail, and he thought he was going to squash this morning. He sees them come in and he says, all right, you've had it, you're going to get it now. And he says this, he almost blurts it out, and you can feel the heat in his voice. He says, did we not, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this man's name? Did we not tell you last time you were before us, this ends now? Did we not strictly, to leave no miscommunication, did we not strictly tell you to stop what you are doing, to stop preaching and teaching in this man's name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. You didn't stop. You kept preaching and teaching, and look what's happened. The world has turned against us. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, there are three different accusations that the priest is making here. He's angry. He got a lot of accusations in one sentence. I want to take them one at a time here. First of all, the priest said, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Now, this was a statement of great hypocrisy. Because the priests themselves, the leaders, the Jewish people, they disregarded the commands of God whenever they felt like it. There's all manner of things they were doing that were contrary to the word and will and decree of God. They did what they wanted when it suited them. However, when someone flaunted their commands, when someone flaunted their commands, well, that's another story. And so with pride and with arrogance over their position in the world and over the grievous offense that these men have taken against them and their authority, the priest is angry because they've challenged him. Now, the second accusation was this, that the... Apostles, the disciples, had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. Filled it, pervaded. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now I want to linger on the implications of this for a moment. Notice that the priest uses the words, and look. He could have just said, you filled the city, everyone's talking about this. It's a buzz. He could have said that. It's trending on first century Twitter. He could have said something like that, but that's not what he says. He says, and look. And look. In other words, what had happened was so obvious that even the most casual bystander or visitor to Jerusalem could look to their left, to the right, to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west. They could have seen everywhere around them and heard with their ears this teaching. Why? Because it had filled the city. It wasn't just some men in an upper room somewhere, as it once was. It wasn't just a small sect, a group. They dealt with sects and groups before. They dealt with small groups of people who believed aberrant things. They dealt with that here... They were dealing with what they thought was rabble, and what the rabble was saying was pervading the city in a way that no other belief ever had. So they say, and look, you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. This isn't theoretical, it's not academic, it's happening. The gospel was manifesting itself in, in substantive ways to everyone. You know, all my life I've lived in Christianized culture, I've lived in Cities that had churches you know, on all the, the main streets downtown. On my life, I've lived in places that had brick buildings with crosses out front. All my life, I've been in such a place. But you know what? I long, 
I long to dwell in a place that has been truly filled with the gospel, irrespective of the buildings, irrespective of the crosses, irrespective of the programs. I long to dwell in a place that's been filled with the gospel. It's been filled with the word, filled with the truth. You know, and here in Gulfport, there's no absence of churches. There's no absence of churches, there's no absence of Bibles. We have it all on your phone, for goodness sakes. There's no absence of churches and Bibles and the like. The problem is that the gospel itself is so often reduced to window dressing and become a sideshow in Christianity when, in the eyes of Christ, it's the main thing. The gospel has come peripheral to other things, like having your best life now and the like. Our culture, the Christianized culture around us, has forms of godliness. It really does. But the power itself is so often denied. Now, what is that power? What is the power behind what we do? I've already suggested it's not the programs, the initiatives, the buildings. It's not the pastor. I know that much for sure. It's not these things. So what is the power? What's the power? Romans 1.16 says this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel. The unadorned, unabridged gospel of Jesus Christ is the power by which the kingdom of Christ grows. Everything else, secondary. The gospel, primary. If you want to build a church, you want to plant a church, you want to grow a church, you start there. You want to grow, tend, cultivate the garden of God here on earth, you start there. And if you look through the book of Acts, especially those first number of chapters, you can see that the growth and efficacy of the church was founded on this. It was founded on what we have here. It was founded on this. It grew because of this. The multitudes came to Christ because of this. Other things can be helpful. Other things can assist. Other things can support that work. I'm glad I'm in a brick building with air conditioning and the like. Absolutely. But you take the gospel out of this house, it's Ichabod. The glory is departed. The gospel is central. The gospel is the power. Now that sounds intuitive, I trust, to all this morning. But it's not the dominant view in our Christianized culture. I mean, North American evangelical Christianity, it really isn't. It's not the dominant view. Many believe that if our church is going to grow, if the kingdom is going to be advanced, it's by being relevant and subjugating what we believe to other things. I was once in a, uh, this is a long time ago, years and years ago, I was with a group of faithful believers. And they thought a way to reach out to young folks was we'd have rave parties, gospel raves for Christ. You know, the flashing lights and all that different stuff. I don't know how many people came to Christ because of the gospel raves that, that we had. What it was, was this. The conversations that we had at this time was, you know, if we offer something that people are into, that's kind of a big deal at that time. If we offer something that people can relate to, that they want, that they desire, then, then, guess what? We can slip them a tract or whisper in their ears something about Jesus. It was a Trojan horse. It was a Trojan horse. We took that which was so important, that which was central, that which was primary, and we subjugated it to something else, and we thought that was evangelism. It's not what you see in Acts 5, or Acts 4, 3, 2, 1, throughout the whole Scripture. It's not what you see. You see a man alive. You see folks standing before other folks, preaching the words of this life, and trusting that that's the power. God told us it is, do we believe him? Trusting that that's the power. That when we confess, as Peter did, that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, when we take that profession, we share it with the world. 
We tell them the problem is sin and the, and the, the solution, the answer God has given us through Christ, that that is the means by which hearts are changed. People come to the Lord. Hope is, is sown in the, in the hearts of men. That's the basis, the means by which the church the church has grown, and any church that tries to grow and build itself on something lesser, even with well-intentioned meanings, purposes, anyone who tries to build on something less as the cornerstone, then Christ and his gospel, they are building on sandy ground. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. It's a gospel that converts sinners. It's a gospel that sanctifies them thereafter. It's a gospel by which they are multiplied. And that multiplication is what was happening in the first century. That multiplication is what the high priest saw and offended and angered him so much. This word was having an effect. It was doing what his words had never done. The kingdom was growing. Let's consider the third part of that, his accusation in verse 28. The third part of his accusation was where he took it the most personally. He said this. He said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, we don't know the priest's exact motivation from these words, but we can identify two probable, probable meanings. First of all, the high priest was probably aware that the people were being turned against him and the others in leadership, and that if they were to become so enraged against himself and the other leadership over their participation in the murder of Christ, that they might turn against him. In other words, if the people began to believe what the disciples were saying, and if they bent the knee to Jesus, what would be the impact to him who had participated in the murder of this Jesus? Well, it wouldn't be good. And so he looks at him saying, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, secondarily, the high priest was probably increasingly aware that if Peter and the apostles were right, if everything they were saying was true, that this Jesus was the Son of God, if they were right about who Jesus was, well, then that meant something dreadful from their perspective. That meant that God himself was opposed to them and would come deal with them. You intend, you intend to bring this man's blood against, against us. Whatever the case, what the apostles were preaching was a great and imminent threat to those in power. Things have not changed over the centuries, nation to nation. The gospel faithfully preached will be responded to harshly, oftentimes, by those who see it as a threat to themselves. Let's look at verses 29-32. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In just a few short sentences, Peter calls the high priest and the council members murderers. He flat out does it. He didn't hold back. There he is. He's back before them. They still theoretically have the power to throw him into prison, to beat him and the like. And yet he looks him in the eyeball and he accuses him of murdering the Christ. This had the effect of discounting their authority, their credibility. As rebukes go to tell someone they murdered Jesus, that's a pretty forceful rebuke. That's probably outside of rebukes that Jesus himself offered. That's probably one of the harshest ones in all of Scripture. What Peter says to them right here, to the high priest, you murdered the one who your office is patterned after. You murdered the high priest, the priest of God. This was a horrific rebuke. And yet, something cool is in this, and I don't want us to miss it. Something cool is in this in verse 31. Verse 31, you see that in the midst of this smackdown that Peter's laying upon them, there's incredible grace in something he says here. 
See, in verse 31, it's there that Peter reminds the council that Jesus, this Jesus, even he who they killed, even now, this Jesus offered them, offers them repentance and forgiveness. He offers them the opportunity to repent and the promise that he will forgive. Think about that. The priests and the others, they are guilty of that which is most damning to be guilty of. They murdered the Christ. And yet, even in the midst of this, what do we see? Words sewn into Peter's statement of repentance and forgiveness. A road to the throne and to the arms of God. Through the shed blood of the very one that killed. Even in the midst of this harsh rebuke, there's this amazing grace. Were they to hear it, accept it, and respond? You know, the people really were. Jerusalem was precious to Jesus. Don't forget that. When you think of the week leading up to his passion, remember what happened? Jesus, he approaches the city. He looks out upon it, and he weeps. His eyes fill with tears. And he looks upon the city because he knows the hardness of the hearts, and he knows what's going to happen. He says, oh, Jerusalem, how I have longed to clutch you into my chest. How I have longed to hold you close. Like a mother hen holding her chicks, how I have longed to hold you close. But you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have it. If you had even known, even you, in this day, the things that make for your peace, oh, Jerusalem. Jesus cared for Jerusalem. Peter cared for Jerusalem. The people on the side of the angels in this narrative cared for Jerusalem. They even cared for the priests. They even cared for those who imprisoned them. They cared for their persecutors. And they offered grace upon grace upon grace. God sends grace to rebels, to enemies. There's always an invitation to turn to Him. With our remaining time this morning, let's... Let's talk about the application here briefly of today's text. If I was to ask, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I was to ask you to raise your hand if you are an ambassador of Christ, I would expect that all those professing believers would get one hand up, maybe both hands up. and say, well, I, that's me. Scripture says I'm an ambassador. Scripture says I'm part of a family, I'm part of a kingdom that is greater than me, and God sent me into the world to plant a flag for King Jesus. I'm an ambassador. And I have friends and people in my world that are different from other friends and people in other people's world. And in that circle, God sent me. And there's people I have an opportunity to minister to that no one else, the pastor on down, might even know them. And yet, God sent me. God has made us ambassadors. He has called us not only as children, but we're on the front lines of kingdom service. And how cool that is. That he invites us to be part of the greatest work we could be part of. And that's the salvation of our fellow men. But if you're going to do that right, if you're going to do it the way that Peter and the others did, it's got to be founded on a rounded, honest declaration of what the gospel is that doesn't water down or hide it or subjugate it to other things. You remember what Spurgeon said? Spurgeon, someone once asked him, how do you defend the gospel? You know, apologetics. How do we contend for what we believe? How do we share it? So I asked Spurgeon, how do you defend the gospel against the world that hates it? They hate you for preaching it. How do you defend it? And Spurgeon, I'm sure with a cigar in his mouth and a hearty laugh, he said something like this. He says, defend it? You don't have to defend it. The gospel is like a lion. You open the cage, you let it out. The gospel can accomplish its own good work. 
The gospel is not toothless. The gospel is not weak. It does not require you to make it relevant. It just takes the intellectual, theological honesty to share it for what it is. To point to the problem of sin and the solution and the personal work of Jesus Christ. If you do that, the city will be filled. If one by one, bit by bit, ambassador by ambassador, flags were planted to our left and to our right, it would have a net effect. The city would be filled. And it would be filled in a way that was obvious. That's a difference. We're in a Christianized culture. But as you walk down the streets, as you engage in interactions, is it obvious that this is a Christianized culture? Or is it obvious that Christ reigns here? Well, oftentimes not. Why? Because sometimes our faith is only bandied about in skin deep. A slogan here, a Facebook image there. God would invite us and call us to something more than that. God would invite us and call us to look at the city of Gulfport, to look at the place we've been settled in the 21st century here and say that we are His saints, we are His ambassadors, and to trust that when we preach the gospel for the fullness of which the Bible presents it, that it will accomplish its own good work and that it can Even in this day where we've had 10,000 false revivals over the past several hundred years, you can see a legitimate, genuine revival so long as it's based on the Word of God. But it requires a will, a will to declare it, to share it. If we do so, the gospel can take care of itself. There's nothing you can add to it that it doesn't already have. I can't help but wonder what Gulfport would be like if the gospel were set loose on its streets. Let's pray for the will and the grace to do so in the time to come. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.